Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. It's another week and another biblical passage for us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our own day-to-day lives. Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Perhaps some of you are soccer fans, or maybe you have seen uh, there are several videos of this kind of thing where there is obviously a penalty kick. It's the end of the game. If he makes the goal, they win. Uh, the man lines up, he kicks, the goalie makes a save and or it hits the goalpost or something and the ball uh, goes up in the air, maybe takes a weird backspin bounce and slowly rolls into the goal because the goalie has left and is celebrating. He thought their team had won and he had left his net and the ball ended up going in after all. Now imagine if you knew the final score of that game ahead of time so you knew that that was going in that that was going to be a goal one way or another even though it looked bleak man that kind of knowledge that's exciting that kind of reminds me as we kind of think of winning that game that humans as human beings we've long desired to know the future we will pay for fortune tellers and psychics and seers and, you know, to tell us what's going to happen or what about this. And sometimes even police forces will sometimes employ a psychic just to try to get some help if they have a difficult case. But boy, do we have insatiable appetites to know the future. You know, even sometimes there's a big movie or TV show that's come out in sequels, part four or five or whatever, the fifth season of, and it's the last one. And there's big anticipation of that final episode. And boy, people want to know what's going to happen and who's going to this and what. And, And it's all kept secret. But you know who knows? The writers know. And the biggest in-the-know area that we want to know things about are usually in the realm of the end of the world and how things are going to come to an ultimate end, the conclusion of life as we know it. And who knows how that's going to happen? Who knows how it's going to end? Well, the one who's writing the story. And we know when it comes to this world, it is God who is sovereign, who is in control, almighty, and he has a plan and a story, and we know how it's going to finish. So the ones who know are the ones who read the story and the ones who even have the privilege of being a part of that story. The reason I bring this up is because we're going to finish Luke chapter 17 today. We're going to begin in verse 20 and go to the end of the chapter. And the bulk, all of that passage of scripture is dealing with what we call eschatology or the study of end times or things about at the end. So we're going to go through it, we hope, rather quickly. And we begin in Luke 17, verse 20, where we read now when he was asked, by the way, this is right after the the 10 lepers story that we did a couple weeks ago. Uh, This is the next event in Luke's chronology after that leper, 10 lepers, one came back and was thankful, that series. 
Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. So we note first it's the Pharisees who ask, when will the kingdom come? Now these Pharisees are Jews, Jewish. They are devout, very serious. They're the scripture memorizers, the ones who say the prayers and lead in the public worship, and they're conservative. And most Jews actually uh, in that day would be under their teachings and influence one way or another. And the Pharisees were very externally orientated and very much into keeping up standards and expectations. They were very into being pious, and they unfortunately were rather proud as well. And they were the ones who didn't get Jesus. They did not recognize him. They did not see who he was. They were always confounded. And who are you? It reminds us of John 1, 11 and 12, when John said in the prologue to his gospel of the account of Jesus that he came to his own, Jesus did, his own creation, but his own, here it was referring to his people, did not receive him. But as many as received him, there were some, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So, the Pharisees routinely rejected Jesus Christ. They didn't see him as the Messiah. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't get Jesus' relational aspect of things as he was trying to tell them about God, the Father, and so forth. Now, the king kingdom they're asking about, this is a Jewish kingdom that was promised in the Jewish scriptures within the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. So they're looking for a literal kingdom on earth that God had promised with the Messiah as king, Jerusalem as capital, and the Jews were waiting for the Messiah and looking for their king and looking for this kingdom. And the Pharisees then have a very Jewish question showing the age-old desire to know about the end. When is the kingdom coming? This is the final chapter as they understood it. And Jesus gives a very Jewish answer. He says the kingdom uh, is, well, well, first his answer, by the way, has nothing to do with the church age. We don't want to confuse that. This is about the Jews, the Pharisees, the Jewish kingdom. Uh, the church age, when we think of our day and age, the New Testament and the church and so forth, that comes after the resurrection of Christ and is distinctly different than Israel. And Jesus, so we're not talking about the church age, but he's talking about this Jewish kingdom, and he says it will come with observable, it will not come with observable signs, is what he means. So there won't be these observable signs. In fact, he says it is now in your midst. He says the kingdom is within you. And the idea of that, the New American Standard and the New International Version, among many others, translate that it is in your midst. The kingdom is in your midst. And what he means by that is, I'm the king. I'm the Messiah, and I'm standing right now, right in front of you. And so he's giving them that much of an answer. But then we see in verse 22, after that, he carries on, but with a different audience. He then said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here, or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generations. So in verses 22 through 25 there, Jesus tells them that you will have a desire in the future to see one of the days of the Son of Man. 
And when he uses and refers to himself in this passage now as the Son of Man, he's referring to himself as the Messiah, the one who will come and set up the kingdom. This language is very specific in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here we would read Daniel in his prophecy saying, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And this is fulfilling the Abraham in a covenant. This is exactly what the Jews would be waiting for. And Jesus says that, <clears throat> back up in Luke 17, as he's talking um, back into, uh, talking to his disciples, he said, there's a day coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, that time is yet future. So even though people are going to say, look, look here, look here, here's the Messiah, whatnot, he says, ignore it, don't follow it. These are false claims. And then he's saying, but his return will be obvious, like the flashing of lightning in the sky. It'll be obvious. People will know when it begins, but also that reference is showing it'll be sudden. But before that kingdom occurs, this, this thousand-year literal reign on earth, first the Son of Man will have to suffer many things and be rejected by the current generation of Jews, those who were being led by the Pharisees right there. He'd said this earlier. Notice in Luke 9, verse 22, Jesus told his disciples back then, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So he'd already told them this, and we already can see that the nation of Israel under the leadership of the Pharisees were not recognizing who Jesus was as a whole, and they were an unbelieving nation, and they were not understanding Jesus was their Messiah. So many things are going to have to happen, he says, the, the, and he'll suffer. And what happens between verse 25 and verse 26 uh, is really what we would call the church age or the delay. Because after he, is, uh, he suffers many things and he is uh, you know, rejected by the nation, uh, we know there are prophecies about how the nation is going to be uh, brought under judgment for that rejection of him, which occurred in 70 AD. Followed, there's going to be what we call the delay or this church age that was hidden and not understood by the Judaistic prophecy. This was something that God had put in here where he's building his church, where it's universal appeal, whosoever shall come. And, and this is the day we're in now and where much of the New Testament is written of and so forth. But then verse 26, we scoot forward past that, and now we're into the coming of the Son of Man. And the reference here is related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. After the seven-year tribulation period, which is future, but the future kingdom, the Messiah, the Son of Man on earth. So in Luke chapter 17, verse 26 now, we read, He'll say with two examples he'll give of what it'll be like with the Son of Man coming. He says, And it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came upon and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, sold, and they planted, and they built. 
But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So Jesus gives these two examples, these two examples in the days of Noah. And these were not um, particularly really nice days, as you as you know, in the days of, of Noah. It was a very violent time. It wasn't a time where there was a lot of love and faith for God on earth. In fact, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. So this is not a very good time in terms of the moral condition of humanity. And yet, it's a, again, it's an evil time and so forth. And yet the point here is that there is sudden destruction. They were carrying on as if they thought they were, you know, indispensable. I don't know, invincible, whatever. But sudden, the flood came and destroyed them. Note, though, before that flood came, the redeemed, Noah and his family, were safely removed. He also compares it to the days of Lot, which we know as well as a wicked place. He lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and these were cities known for their uh, wickedness. And again, they're caring about everyday life, and sudden destruction came, unexpected, and it came, and after this there was judgment. And so we see that Jesus is saying that the days of the Son of Man will be like these two examples where there will be a sudden destruction and judgment that comes upon people that are pretty much ignoring God. Also in the days of Lot, um, the redeemed were taken out of that city before that destruction came. And those, both of those of Noah taken out in the ark and Lot and his wife and, and, and his daughters and such, these are pictures of the rapture. This is a picture of how God takes his redeemed out before this, this sudden judgment, this tribulation-like judgment, but also this, this return of Jesus Christ and the judgment that will come upon the earth at that time at the second coming. Well, we'll now find ourselves in Luke chapter 17 and verse 30. He then reads, even so, Jesus goes on to say rather, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that word revealed is apocalypto. This is the second coming. So Jesus is referring to when he comes physically to earth just before the thousand-year kingdom, literally on earth, he will be the Messiah King. And in that day, verse 31, he who is on the housetop and, and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. He says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. And so he reminds them in this passage here that, again, it's going to be sudden. And don't go try to gather your things or pack a suitcase. When it comes, in a sense, even take cover because judgment is coming. Now, he said at this point, that means it's sudden and judgment will follow. So this is a, a time then that really it's too late. You access where are you at? What have you valued? What have you lived for? And he made the point, remember Lot's wife? He, she had this desire and this, this passion for the city and the earthly things. That must have been where her heart was. And so he's giving this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, axiomatic like statement this principle it's repeated in four all four gospels where he says he who seeks basically to save his life and his self-interest will ultimately lose that but he who loses his life his self-interest and selfish pursuits for christ he'll save it so as this judgment comes there will be those on earth that will be 
in a positive place, as we would see if we had time in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats judgment that's coming after. There's going to be those who uh, demonstrated their faith through uh, various works, especially toward the Jews, and there were those who had uh, no care or even uh, um, persecution of the Jews during that time. So, So the idea then is that, look, when the judgment, when he comes, flash of lightning, etc. It is sudden. Um, then it's that's when there will be judgment, and it'll be your, where you're at was already now settled. He gives two more examples of this in verses 34 through 36. Jesus says, I tell you, and that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. And so he says with these two more examples, again, this idea of suddenness, he says two men will be resting at night, kind of strange uh, way of saying that, but I guess it's because it wasn't maybe entirely unusual in that culture, but also it shows maybe close association or friends or whatnot, but one taken one remains. Then there's two women working during the day, grinding. This is making millstone and flour. So we have these two women, one taken, one remains. And so this is a form of that judgment. And again, remember, this is not the rapture, because in the rapture, we know that God takes from the earth those who are redeemed, and the ones who remain are the lost. But here, we will see then that it's the ones who are not redeemed that are taken, and they will be taken and reserved for a future ultimate judgment at the great white throne. But the ones who are redeemed will remain, and they will enter the thousand-year kingdom with the king and the resurrected Old Testament saints. So, this is the idea then of the sudden appearing, the apocalyptic appearing, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the final verse in verse 37, the disciples answered and said to him, Where, Lord? In other words, where will this happen, this, this, this judgment, etc.? And he said to them, Wherever the body is, wherever the carcass is, Matthew tells us in his version, there the eagles will be gathered together. And this is a reference really then to Armageddon and to the final uh, gathering of humans and a sense of defiance against God as Jesus Christ returns to earth. Revelation 19, 17 and 18. This is the written passage of Jesus literally coming to the earth. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and this is John speaking in Revelation, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Because we know Armageddon is the scene where the armies of the world and people were gathered to march on Israel and and eliminate Israel once and for all. That's when they turn in faith and say, Lord Jesus, come. They recognize Christ as their Messiah. He then comes on behalf because of their faith now and their willingness to believe on him as their Messiah. And he eliminates that mass of humanity that were there to destroy Israel. And it's not a big Rambo scene, violence and this and that. It happens in a second because Jesus just speaks. And the sword out of his mouth, the truth and the absolute truth, is completely convicts and destroys the nations. And that's the reference then in Luke 17.37, the banquet for the eagles who specialize 
and carcass. That's right, our national symbol is one that actually uh, is a uh, eats dead things. <laughs> so, uh, not mentioned in Luke, though, as we think of the end times, we see this is telling us about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But after that second coming, uh, Jesus then will have what we call the judgment of the nations, and he'll separate the sheep and the goats, and the goats will be reserved for future judgment at the end of the thousand years at the great white throne. The, sh- the sheep that are on earth that are redeemed, the one that is remaining, and those, you know, the man in the field and the woman grinding, um, they will enter the kingdom with Jesus Christ and the resurrected saints of the Old Testament and this thousand-year guaranteed kingdom with Jesus Christ ruling on earth. So after that thousand years is over, and we see that Jesus Christ has reigned in his righteousness and such, there will be then a final judgment called the Great White Throne where all the unsaved will have their time of court, so to speak, before the Lord, and then they will be tossed into the lake of fire for eternal separation, and there will be a new heaven and new earth, as Revelation 21 and 22 tells us. One that, new heaven, that will be perfect and restored, etc. Or new earth, rather, perfect and restored. In fact, we don't, when you think of heaven, don't think of uh, playing a harp and wearing a robe and, and such, floating on a cloud. The, new, the heaven is the new earth. It's earth. It's probably even better than this earth because it's perfect and it's, uh, and it's where we'll spend eternity, on a new earth. So that's the end of the story. We know the end of the story, a conquering king that comes and sets things right and righteousness rules on the earth and there is peace on earth and will be a final separation of that which is uh, of evil and is resistant to God. And then we have eternity. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll be there. You'll be involved. You'll be part of it. And all of this is called prophecy, when you can foretell what will come and predict future events. Boy, to be able to say what will happen before it happens, who can do that? That is amazing. And that's why Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God tells us this, Remember the former things of old, he says, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's our God. He can declare to be, the, he's the beginning and he's the ending. He writes the history. It's called his story. In fact, when you think of uh, Jesus Christ coming, there's over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled from the Old Testament by the birth and the life of Jesus Christ. And there are many other prophecies in the Old Testament uh, related to other things that were fulfilled as well. So if God foretold all of these events of the past and they occurred as described, well, it's obvious then that all these future things, these remaining prophecies of the end times, they're going to be fulfilled too, just like the very things we just read in Luke 17. Because God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he's the master of the story, the author. He is sovereign, and he says, I will do all my pleasure. So let's think, what is his pleasure? His pleasure is to magnify his glory so it is seen and known by all. His pleasure is to demonstrate his goodness, his holiness, his mercy to all the universe. To tell the universe, love wins and good wins, righteousness wins. To do this, he has planned an amazing redemption story. And his story, which begins, which, excuse me, will bring him ultimate glory and honor. 
and his pleasure then that he wants to do, it's all good. It's noble. It's as excellent as it can be. So that story is carried out, starting with him being the creator. In fact, Colossians 1.16 reminds us, By him all things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. You and I were created through Jesus Christ, through God, and we were created for him, to know him. But in order, this means this is a choice that God had. He chose to create us, to be included in this eternal relationship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And he created us in his image, unique for relationship is what this means. We uniquely correspond to him. Humans have volition and morality, sense of justice, intellect that is way beyond in comparison of anything else of created animals. We have expression and abilities and art and language and so many things. All of this is well coupled with a spiritual dimension and awareness of God. And all of this connects us to him. And he gave us a paradise, a created earth, perfect, where there was so much to discover and all of it we have dominion over. And we were over all the earth. The humanity is the, is the king and queen, so to speak, of all the earth, but yet under him and his ultimate sovereignty. And we were designed then to walk in unity with him, in relationship with him, in harmony with him, a paradise, and to have great relationships with one another and with him. In order to have relationship and for this love to be expressed, that necessitates choice. So we were created as humans with freedom of choice and to say yes and to willingly be a part of that relationship. But that choice we know is exploited. There's always a villain in a story. Through deception, Satan, an enemy of God, comes in. And as humanity, we fall into sin, leaving us in a pool of selfishness and death, which means separation from God. We're not like him anymore. Uh, The fallen human, we are selfish. We're self-seeking. We are liars and deceptive and disloyal to God. And we prefer almost unrighteousness. And so we have tension in our story that God has created here, conflict between a good and perfect God and a a sinful humanity, independent and rebellious. But the story has a hero, and the hero is God himself. He's not desiring this conflict, this division, this barrier. He plans a rescue, a provided redemption. The author of this story knows exactly what he is doing, and he will conduct a rescue mission from which all humanity has opportunity to be saved. His love motivates him to send his only son into our fallen world and to provide the way of escape where he's going to make all things right. It starts with a prediction of this way back in Genesis 3.16, back in the garden, as he tells us of one who will come and be the ultimate victor. The story needs a place uh, for Jesus to enter the earth and begin to provide this deliverance. So before Jesus came, God chose one tribe, one people group, the Hebrews, who became known as the Jews through their religion, and he chose them and gave them covenants and the prophets and leaders who led them and a law to follow. 
all of the Jewish distinctions that made them distinct were really telling his God's story in symbolic form. The Jews had a sacrificial system, all picturing one final ultimate sacrifice, John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They had a Passover feast and system that they would do there. Uh, all that demonstrated the sacrificial Lamb who was substituting for the guilty. They had a Levitical priesthood that provided access to God through various means of uh, cleansing, and so forth, all this demonstrating this priestly access, but it's, they was demonstrating for us the one mediator that God would send between God and humanity that would make us all priests with access to God through him. So all of this was symbolic and picturing God's story of the ultimate one who would come as he promises the Jews a kingdom then as well, a king that will rule forever. The Abrahamic covenant is how this was promised and how where it came back in Genesis 12, and it was an unconditional covenant, and it will be fulfilled by God. So this is yet future and coming, and that's why the Jews were waiting for this kingdom. And when Jesus came as their king, they didn't receive him. They rejected him. As we read the Pharisees, we see this over and over in the gospel accounts. So God turned this rejection that they had for his son and his death on the cross, he turns that into the plan of salvation for all people and all nations for all time. Through the death of Jesus, his only son, God will offer life and escape and salvation to any who will take it. Because there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, as 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says. So your sin was laid on him. Jesus absorbed God's wrath on your behalf, and he cries out, it is finished. That's his story. And if you believe this, that his love was demonstrated on that cross for you, that's the issue. Would you put your faith in Christ who died for you and rose again, and he's now offering you free gift of life? And you can take it by faith, trusting him, recognizing that he is the true Son of God, Messiah, who came and died for you personally. No works on your part can save you. This isn't about you. It's about him, his glory, and his supreme act of love, and his sacrifice, and his obedience to the Father, his righteousness. The spotlight is totally on him. Don't seek to rob him of any of that spotlight by insisting you contribute in some way and works. You don't. We're saved not by our works. When asked, Paul, the jailer in Acts 16 said, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved because it is finished and it is a gift and it is by grace. So it's not too late. At some point in the future, there will be sudden death. We all will encounter death in our life and then following judgment. So today is a good day to just be the one whosoever believes on him that will not perish but have eternal life. So what does this mean to us? <clears throat> I would first say this is a grand story where the author knows the end, and we know that, so we can get in the story. I just appeal to you again, if you don't know Christ as your Savior and that you have guaranteed eternal life, remember you were created for him and he loves you, and through Christ you can be born again and have newness of life. You can get in the story by faith. And if you're a believer, you then were encouraged to stay in the story. Because, you know, we all have our own story. But now it's part of his story, his grand story. We have union with Christ. We're in Christ. We have identity with him, a position in him, spiritual life, his life pumping through us. 
And we know how the story ends. We know the Messiah King is Victor, and he's the sovereign king. We know the author, Jesus, and God are the master of this all. And we have the Holy Spirit within us so we can learn things and grow and become more and more walking in unison with him. And we have opportunity to daily walk with him and enjoy fellowship and practical unity. So by faith, our story comes melded into his story. And so from Luke 17, I can say, now you know. You know how in the end, Jesus will come. And just even how he phrased it in Luke 17, the coming again of Jesus Christ, the second coming. So who's the hero in your story? It's never us, is it? It's him. And so we want to understand that our story makes sense in him. We're writing our our own story. We get the privilege of having a chapter that's just part of his great story, our life, our opportunities. And we might feel overwhelmed, but we can just stay in the story. He's with you. You're never alone. He's got you. And it's not too late. Your story's not finished yet, which means you're still here. So you can walk by faith and you can allow him to bring about his desires in your life. It's not based on anything we do. It's based on God's unconditional love and that staggering sacrifice. And we get to be part of that story and walk with him. You know, Romans 12, 2 says that uh, as we are united with him, that we can learn to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As he gives us a renewed mind, we can identify, wow, I can see where God worked here, where God showed up there, where this was him in my life. And we can look back and we can discover and test and see that this was where God was and this is his story and I'm where I should be, etc. Because God's will for us is relational. And we may sense it sometimes beforehand, but we certainly discover it and realize it afterwards. As we walked in the, our life and he was writing our story within his story. The beforehand part that we want to know so much beforehand as it relates to God's will, that's these end times. That's the Luke 17. We know how the story ends. In fact, let me leave you in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. But when he comes, we will be like him. And so the idea is we know the manner of love, and we know where we're headed. We're going to be like Christ and with him forever. We know how it ends. Praise the Lord. What a God who can guarantee that, who can write the end of the story from the beginning. And he's told you and I, we know how it ends. So when we look at this eschatology and things of Luke 17, it's information, yes, but boy, does it bring glory to God? And does it give us amazing bounce in our step as we know that we are walking through this life, forming our story, which is just part of his greater story. So, friends, now you know. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are that one true sovereign God who does truly all that you please. And we're so thankful that all that you please is nothing but good and righteous and just. Thank you that you're full of love, so loved the world that you gave your only son. May everyone listening know with certainty their future destiny with you through faith in Christ. And for those of us saved, may you just remind us again of your future, the end story. You've written the end, and you're still writing individual chapters of our lives. But thank you that we can know the ultimate end, 
and have that ultimate assurance and that ultimate promise and that ultimate destiny with you. Thank you that we're on the winning team with you and that you're the powerful God that can guarantee it all. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening again. And just remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope. Oh.